1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host Matt Miller.
2: Every business day we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Today is Fed Minutes Day and here at Bloomberg and Radio we think that's a. Kind of a fun day, so we get excited about Fed minutes. So does our next guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Danielle, what are you really looking for this afternoon when we get a look at those uh, Fed minutes?
3: Well, I, I'm, I'm going to be looking for the tacit, and I use that word carefully. The tacit concession made to the the the, the bears made to christopher waller the former research director uh, of jim bullard at the st louis fed who's now a governor uh and mester and george and others who have been insistent that the federal reserve does not belong in the business of of housing of the word we would use internally when i was at the fed was credit allocation Mm -hmm. um so it's an inappropriate uh place for the fed to be and it has been for about a year and the only nod that we saw to them in the minutes was that they you know they they Said specifically, we're going to get out of the housing business. We're going to get out of the business of mortgage backed securities and focus more on treasuries. So I'm interested in that conversation and how that went down because I think it's what prevented a dissent.
2: Yeah, a lot of people, though, are getting downright angry that they're waiting this long to make those statements and that they're waiting until the March meeting to make any moves. Inflation is at a level where, you know, I'm getting. I'm getting text messages from from viewers who finally figured out my cell phone number. And there are a lot of oh, expletives in them. Um, w- what do you think about the possibility of an emergency meeting or a 50 basis point hike in March?
3: You know, when, when I saw, and I, I, was, I was actually, I was gratified that Jim Bullard stood by his position on Monday morning. And because it at it, it least seems to me that there are at least a few people inside the Fed who are not insensitive and that's the word that I'll use. So it's all good and well to come out with an emergency rate cut in March of 2020 uh, you know, when investors are being you know, in the crosshairs. But it's not okay to come out with an emergency rate hike to answer the plight of everyday U.S. workers. And that's, to me, it boils down to being white and black. It's as simple as that. We will come to the rescue of investors. We will not come to the rescue of U.S. households. And the Fed is mandated to make policy in the public interest and to suggest that when, 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 we're, when, when we've got the gallows humor going on about skateboarding and relearning how to do that and gas prices are you know, hitting $4 a gallon, it's, it's just, again, the word that comes to mind is insensitive.
2: $5 a gallon. We were talking about <laughs> gas
1: hitting
3: $5 Good a gallon. Good gosh. Yeah. So, Danielle, I mean, when we think
1: about inflation in the Fed, I, I'm not even sure the Fed's in that business. Isn't inflation this time around – primarily supply chain driven? So is this, uh, I don't
2: it's know. It's a good Fed, point. Maybe it's something that the Fed can't address. Yeah. How do you think about that?
3: I, you know, I don't think it's supply chain driven. We, we saw production this morning increased by 0.2% yep. once you got rid of the, the cost for heating oil and gas. So I, I don't buy that. I think that the supply chain disruptions are coming undone. We're seeing inventories be replenished. Uh, and at the You know, on the other hand, 42 million Americans got a 25 percent bump up in their allocation for food spending on October the 1st. And that's why, despite world food inflation being off the rails, it's even more off the rails for your average American family because the the U.S. government has pumped so much fiscal spending out into the economy. So we we have to look in the eye the fact that, that fiscal spending, and there's been... Countless empirical studies done on this. When you give people money, directly deposit cash into the hands of those with the highest propensity to spend it, they're going to spend it, and they did. And inflation is lagging, so it's dragging down growth, even as the fiscal stimulus has largely gone away.
2: Can I just ask you uh, quickly about Sarah Bloom Raskin? What's your take on um, the kind of job she'll do, if she's ever confirmed?
3: Well, and I think it's—I really do think it's a big if people don't quite understand the importance of Pat Toomey sticking to his guns and saying I'm, I'm self-imposing term limits—and so time and again he's been able to actually do his job and 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 you know give the scrutiny that's needed to certain positions, whether it was the Fed's municipal bond facility that he insisted be shut down along with those credit facilities in the December 2000, um, 2021. At uh, twenty, excuse me, two thousand twenty stimulus. I, I think that there has been an inappropriate amount of um, of disclosure, and I think demanding questions as opposed to uh, being placated with saying "I'll sign a pledge that's never existed and dreamed up by Elizabeth Warren." No, I I think an appropriate amount of scrutiny is called for, and I find some of the right. testimonies plural that have been that have been given to be disingenuous because of the work right. that they've done in the past on climate change.
1: Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate Great uh, having your thoughts and insight. Danielle Martino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Speaking of inflation, boy, no matter where, the, where you look, you see it. CPI, PPI, retail sales, uh, certainly many signs of inflation out there, whether it's at the gas pump or the supermarket. The question is, um, have we peaked? Has it peaked? Uh, When will we see inflation uh, subside? And does the Federal Reserve and other central banks have any role here. Let's check in with Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. So Jennifer, I'd love to get your call here on kind of U.S. inflation. Have we peaked? Are we near a peak? How do you think about it?
4: Uh, good morning. I'm going to continue saying that we have not peaked just yet. We are actually expecting uh, the inflation data to sort of, you know, uh, peak, maybe roll over. I'm going to say like late spring-ish. Um, I don't think it's going to head south very quickly. Um, unfortunately, it probably stays somewhat elevated before heading uh, uh, b- before cooling somewhat in the second half of the year. But um, so, no, in my a, a, a long-winded way of saying, it, I don't think we've uh, peaked just yet. But we're almost
2: there. But you do think that we're going to come back down. Um, is that because you think uh, the Fed is going to hike rates and that's going to cool down the economy and inflation?
4: That would be the hope. I mean, that's, uh, you know, they, I think mean, central banks around the world, uh, as you're just pointing out, uh, are, are facing the same issues right now. And, uh Given such high inflation rates globally, you know all the central banks, including the Fed, are um, you know starting to to rein in all that accommodation that they've poured out during the, during the pandemic. Um, and this is the time, and and with inflation, before inflation gets too much out of control.
1: So Jennifer, I'm looking at the WIRP GO function on the Bloomberg Terminal, and shows me potential for seven rate hikes in calendar 2022. Is that something you ascribe to? Oh.
4: Cool. <laughs> High. The numbers keep rising, I feel, every, every single week. Uh, we are actually we are looking for five rate hikes uh, this year, uh, 25 basis points uh, each, and, and, and kicking off in March. I think that's a more, you know, I've been saying a more reasonable pace. Um, I think 50 basis points, for example, in March that some are calling for is a uh, uh, I think it would be quite aggressive, um, and I think it was only like one um, one Fed member in particular that has been pushing for that. But I think the other um, policymakers have been taking a more of a balanced approach and looking for probably 25 basis points instead.
2: One of the concerns – I mean, we all know what um, rate hike cycles look like, or even the kids can go back and, and look at the history. But one sort of unknown is how quantitative tightening – will affect markets. How do you see that panning out? Will they just um, let it run off the balance sheet? Will they actively sell assets? Is it going to be a problem for rates markets?
4: So we are looking for the the QT process to start probably in July um, and and, and sort of taper off um, at a steady pace. But the Fed has always said that they are going to focus um, more on the Fed funds target specifically, uh, because that is what the public knows, and and how you know whether or not balance sheet runoff is is going to impact anyone's mindset is 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 a big question. But I think they're going to just basically use the Fed funds and talk and keep talking about raising rates, and sort of in the background, let uh, uh, let the balance sheet sort of uh, start um, coming off. Um, And I think that will also have the impact of, you know, of a a tighter, tighter financial conditions besides just rate hikes.
1: Jennifer, uh, at 2 p.m. Wall Street time, we're going to get the FOMC meeting minutes. Uh, It's always big news here at Bloomberg. What are you looking for when when you peruse those minutes?
4: There's always a lot to go through, but it's always interesting to get like little, little, little tidbits like, you know, how. How much each policymaker was pushing for? What the, you know, how many, um, were there several, a few, you know, a majority of, of people that were pushing for, you know, a, a, more aggressive, uh, tact at the beginning of a, of a rate hike cycle, or are they trying to go more steadily? Those are the little nuances, I think, just to see, you know, where, uh, how they're going to, uh, start off. You know, even though they were saying that they're going to start, uh, raising rates right now, and even though, as you're pointing out, we've got seven rate hikes potentially, Coming in 2022, which again I think is a bit extreme. Um, you know, things can change, and once inflation starts to taper off, they could start reining in a little bit some of their um, their hawkish talk. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be. Uh, I don't think they're on autopilot. As, I think that's what I'm trying to say. And I think most central banks are probably in that mode right now.
2: Um, uh, not all, right? We see some uh, interesting exceptions. In the, the Bank of Japan springs to mind. We had an interesting opinion piece this morning <laughs> on Bloomberg saying you know, the economy, the growth uh, or the the recovery in Japan doesn't look great, but as we all, the rest of us, deal with this huge inflation, um, the rest of the world might uh, look to Japan and think 1% doesn't look so bad right now. What's your take on the contrasts um, of the Bank of Japan with with the rest of the central bank regime?
4: Japan has been, it's such an interesting story there, and I mean, they've been facing, you know, deflation all you more or less, for the last at least uh, two decades or so Um, and that is one um, um, central bank as you just pointed out that is remaining stubbornly on, on the sidelines, and Governor Kuroda com, uh, continues to, to stress that point. Um, you know, they had bond yields, for example, rising. Their 10-year yields were rising in conjunction with everybody else's uh, uh, last week and earlier this week, and they had to pour some money into it to, to bring it back down to what their target was. But they, they remain so dovish, and even one, one or two of the, uh, the 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 policymakers within the bank um, continue actually to push for even more accommodation. So that's a huge extreme from what we're seeing elsewhere. You know, with with the G7, even the ECB right now. You know, they're starting to um, become less emboldened to their um, transitory story, and we're probably going to see. You know, it's still a, a matter of debate right now. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see rate hike before the end of the year.
2: All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, real pleasure talking to you. Um, we. Obviously, you're following this story very closely um, and and we will continue to. Uh, Jennifer Lee there joining us from BMO Capital Markets, where she is Senior Economist and Managing Director.
1: I want to talk electric vehicles. Ah, uh, yes.
2: Uh, well, I want to talk internal
1: combustion vehicles, but it's the same discussion. It's the same discussion. Connor Sen, a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us. Connor, you've got a, a piece out here saying the— Automakers have an incentive, obviously, for keeping new car prices high, used car prices high, because they need the profits to fund this whole pivot towards electric. What's going on out there? Okay,
2: you're basically saying they're purposely holding back production to pad margins.
5: They, they, they say that they're kind of in a spot that they don't mind, where, you know, again, they have to invest billions of dollars in this EV transition, and they also have to show investors near-term profitability. They're trying to do both. And so they see that prices are really high, inventories are really low. So they're saying that their production won't meaningfully impact prices, and they expect prices to remain high because that's going to fund the profits that keep the, keeps this thing going.
2: So, in a way, your column actually made me feel better about being um, an old, you know, dodgy EV holdout because I am waiting for General Motors to release a new Sierra, the AT4X. I need the 6.2 liter who naturally aspirated V8. And I felt guilty about that until I read your column, Col- <laughs> column Connor, because um, what I realized is I'm paying a high price for that big inch internal combustion engine. And I am uh, effectively subsidizing their electric vehicle investment with that. That's a really good way. I've never thought of it
5: that way, but that's a good point. So now anyone who really wants their gas guzzler can say, hey, look, I'm, I'm paying for your EV so, yeah. it, you know, it, there's no way that we'd be building these things unless people like me were going out and doing our patriotic duty, keeping the, the old stuff going.
1: Connor, but if, if the automakers had the chips, wouldn't they crank up production back up to 16, 17 million SAR?
2: Yeah, this is my well, main I question was, is selling fewer vehicles at higher prices more profitable than selling um, more vehicles at lower prices? prices right and
5: that gets to the whole discussion about you know what does demand for gasoline powered vehicles look like in 2023 2024 we know that right now we've got a huge shortage and if you just pump out vehicles for six months they're all going to sell at high prices but it's, you know it's an industry with a lot of it's capital intensive long lead times, and if evs ramp up you know that's coming out of somewhere and so it's kind of a tricky situation kind of like oil, oil product producers where they kind of need to keep supply low because they're really worried about a glut on the market as demand falls off over time
1: a buddy of mine uh, runs a bunch of dealerships, and he used to say he'd have you know, a couple hundred vehicles in inventory, but he says those days are over. That's on how they're going to run the dealerships going forward. It, it, is this kind of a new normal where they're going to have lower inventories, maybe lower production? I'm yeah. just not sure how that works.
5: Yeah, it's interesting because we're seeing the same thing in the housing market where homebuilders are very happy with kind of the low inventory, high profit margin situation. That's sort of like well, we we got caught on too little inventory, but we're making it up on price and, and margins. So they're they're kind of rolling with it for now, and investors are sort of not sure. Like you know, valuations are, are lower because they're not sure if margins are going to mean revert. But that's you know what they're selling in terms of a good thing for investors right
2: now. Yeah, my wife is looking for a, a BMW X5 XDrive 45e, which is their new hybrid SUV. Okay. I messaged my inside guy at BMW and said... You have an inside guy at BMW? Yes. I said, can you source nice. one of the, one, one of these for me at a dealership in the States? And he said, we have one in California. <laughs> There's one in San Luis well, Obispo. Actually,
5: <laughs> Ford actually called out dealers that were selling at inflated prices above MSRP, and they said so that those dealers aren't going to get inventory going forward.
2: So... You know, they I hope they're I hope they're true that. to their word, because if you yeah. look for, um, for example, a Ford F one hundred and fifty Raptor, uh, their uh, you know Baja racing truck, or if you look for the Mustang uh, Shelby Mustang GT five hundred, which is the supercharged five point two liter seven hundred sixty horsepower monster, I- you can't find them without ten thousand fifteen thousand twenty thousand dollar additions to the price tag. They call it like um, added dealer something um profit margin. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I I always wonder like if they're doing that, why can't um these producers have their own dealerships?
5: Right, and that's probably the the whole point with the online sales and the big fight about that. So it's that's probably going to be a contentious fight going forward as dealers want, you know, if Tesla and Rivian can sell online, then why can't Ford and GM?
2: You make that's a great a point fight. about Tesla in your column as well. Um Elon Musk basically said, "Yeah, we're not working on the uh, cheap car for every man right now because we're making too much right. money with the expensive cars for rich people um w- w- what's you know there's got to be some outcry there at least I mean, not that mo- not that the model 3 is that expensive but they are making huge margins on all their products
5: right I mean i think right now because semiconductors are in short supply they can credibly say you know sorry this is really just the situation we're, we're put upon we're put in but if some if semiconductor inventory is normalized then maybe there won't be those excuses and they'll be more of a legitimate outcry and crackdown on you know windfall profits or whatever you want to call it
1: so what is the new normal level of vehicle sales in the US if it's not or production if it's not 16 17 million
0: com. Uh,
1: What's that, SAR? that? You're always asking me what the SAR is for this yeah, year, right? Yeah, and I think the i that's where demand is, right? I mean, uh, if I'm a factory, I, I'm, I think I'm cranking time, out yeah, demand. I think,
5: I think over time that's where we're going to be, but it's sort of EVs are supply constrained for the time being, okay. and then automakers are very cautious about flooding the market with ICE vehicles because they don't know what demand looks like down the road.
2: Connor, just personally, have you spent any uh, time, seat time in an electric vehicle? What do you think about them?
5: I I have to. It's it's sort of embarrassing that I write about them, but I have not been behind the wheel of one. I'm on the list, Caribbean, but I have not driven one yet.
2: I I have to say, so many I find um, interesting. I was super psyched about these F 150 Lightning trucks coming out, but the the, the wait list put me off. Now I've tested out the Mustang Mach E, which is fast and sporty. But it doesn't vibrate. It doesn't. There's no feeling in it. That's the. I don't enjoy I driving asking, it. I keep asking you, car people, isn't
1: that going to be a, a big turnoff for these things, for EVs? I just, I just think the folks that like the internal combustion engine, particularly if you go the high end. You know, performance cars. I think that's going to be a problem. But what do I know? So, but everybody's telling me we're all. And you going can't shift electric. your own
2: gears. I know.
1: Don't even. Go, no more manual, Connor. I mean, let's not go there. I, right, Connor, send columnist for Bloomberg Opinion joining us. He's a founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, we're all going electric, folks. Get used to it, I guess. Uh, I'm keeping my 2014 BMW 5 Series, six-speed manual transmission for as mm, long as I possibly stick can, because uh, it's a lot of fun. One of the many things that I don't understand about this pandemic and the economic disruption resulting from it is this whole thing about the great resignation, these three, 4, 5 million workers. Who are they? Where did they go? How, how did they do it? And I really don't know. How did they get it.
2: so lucky? How did they get so lucky? I'm thinking
1: about uh, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg's former well, stocks editor. Um, I blame him. I put him in that bunch, but maybe I mean, our next t- guest He worked
2: here for 30 years. If you work someplace for 30 years, plus you're incredibly smart, Yep, uh, you save well, you invest well, you should retire. Okay, all right, all right. I just said, Dave, where are you going,
1: buddy? Michael Hansen, he's the CEO of Cengage Group. Uh, Michael, who are these people? Where did they go? Are they coming back to the workforce?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, actually, the example that you said, the retiring um, people are the the minority of these people. Yes. The vast majority of those people that are resigning are actually reassessing their career they're saying what don't I like about my current job and what where do I want to go next and about eighty three percent of them feel that their current job is not really supporting their career and is not supporting them
2: yeah that's why I say you know he should be retiring if you if you have a thirty year career and you do very well and retire that 's no that's no surprise. The Great Resignation is weird in that people who you wonder, how do they have enough money to, to quit their jobs are doing it? And one of the points that you make, Michael, is that they're actually making financial sacrifices. They're not retiring to Indian Hills and playing 18 holes a day. They're, they're doing other stuff. Exactly.
6: And, and this is why this is actually good news in a way. These people are courageous. They take risks. And what they say is, I want to learn another skill. And I want to get a better job that gives me more satisfaction and better pay, and that is something that actually should give us, uh, you know, great confidence in the future and great uh, conviction in the American labor uh, labor force. In a
2: way, Michael, they're shaking that. up the job market as well. You know that the courage of those people, which is what I hear you saying, is forcing employers to do better in terms of the wages they offer, in terms of working conditions, in terms of dealing with, you know, the working class.
6: Absolutely. And the only thing I would add, uh, other than what you said, is the employers should think about also about how they reskill and upskill their workforce. How, what can they do to give them education and training and give them opportunities while they're working to get better skills, to get a better job and better pay? they don't have to wait until they resign. They can do it when they're actually employees.
1: Michael, uh, Matt and I uh, have to come into the office every day. I don't. Uh, we don't have an option per se, but it seems like we are very much the outliers in this new world order. Are you in the camp that says we are now in a permanent hybrid type of environment?
6: I'm in the camp of, first of all, let's not stipulate what the future is going to hold we got to get open and we got to learn and we're to learn what works and what doesn't work and i am however a believer that we're not going to go back to the old world that everybody has to show up in the office at you know 9 a.m on monday morning that's not where we're going to go where we're going to end up is going to be a hybrid model but how we're going to mix it how we have technology influence this i think is open and what i recommend to other ceos that are you know we are a four and a half thousand people company we're experimenting a lot and we're learning from each other and keep that open mindset
2: yeah I, I mean I I would point out that it would be technologically possible for me to do this job from home I wouldn't it want was. to yeah um, because we pick up so much from our colleagues here we discuss stories I uh, you know am in the midst of breaking news are we going to be able to do that online eventually, Michael? What do you think about um, the possibility of working in the metaverse?
6: I, I don't think we're going to – in the foreseeable future, I don't think we're going to be uh, doing this online. I think we've got to find the right blend and the right mix. And you use some great examples when you bump into colleagues, you share stories. And think about somebody just joining a company. You've never worked for this company. And how do you get you know a sense of what the culture is like if you don't have – a cup of coffee with people or share a meal or you know bump into them at the water cooler so i do think hybrid uh, that, that finding the right mix of face to face and online is going to be the wave of the future
1: hey michael thanks so much uh, for joining us there michael hansen ceo of Gauge group talking about the great resignation
2: thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.